0: hello everyone and welcome to gaming in the wild a video games podcast about games from the artistic creative side of the spectrum. My name's John I'm your host I'm a, a journalist based out in Reykjavik Iceland. we're now on the 12th episode and a question that I get a lot is how come the the games that we cover um, skip around so much So I've covered games that have come out between I think 2006 and 2020. Um, they often skip between systems, skip between generations, skip between decades. Um, the short answer is that the last console that I owned was probably the PS2 before the current generation. The last game that I remember—I was trying to think about it today—the last game that I remember buying was Shadow of the Colossus. So that's that's quite a while ago, um, and I as i've said before i sold all my consoles when i was just getting rid of my entire house basically i had a probably seven or eight console collection sold it all to along with the rest of my life when i moved out here to iceland in uh, 2013 and then i didn't really pick up a game in a serious way outside of you know the old mobile game or the odd session at someone's house or whatever until late 2019 when i got a switch picked up Breath of the Wild, had some time on my hands all of a sudden, and just went head first into into Breath of the Wild in a big way, and that led on to exploring the kind of the wider Switch library, which in turn led on to me being on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild and sort of joining the Twitter games community, and deciding that I I had a lot of ground to pick up, Um, I'd missed, you know, 7-10 to years worth of games, maybe even more in effect, and deciding to try and look at all the games of the year lists, and play the games that I've missed. So I picked up a PS4, I also have a Mac, um, which I use for Steam and Epic. and um, And since then I've been playing lots of games of the year that I missed, playing lots of highly rated games, or just games that are curious in some way. This includes basically the whole rise of indie gaming, which wasn't really a thing back when I used to play, or was just becoming a thing. And so that's the reason that the, uh, the games that we cover on the show are so kind of mismatched. It's because it's my own personal um, journey back in time through all the games that I have missed. Which brings us up to this episode, where I'm going to talk about four very different games. The first one will be a, a really interesting title that came to me as a recommendation from Reagan Kelly at the Short Game Podcast. And that is Katamari Damacy. Um, it's a, a, a really, um, quite a cult game, really interesting game. Really, really interesting. It's now on Switch. So I've been playing that one a lot. The second game is going to be Coffee Talk, a game that came out at the very start of this year. And it's um, a visual novel set in a kind of a, a parallel universe, Seattle, based around a coffee house. The third game is a true oddity, even compared to Katamari Damacy, and that is called The Good Time Garden. It's a a 20 minute experience in inverted commas that is just off the scale weird. I thought I've got to to mention this game in the podcast. And finally, I'm gonna follow up last episode's session talking about The Last of Us Remastered. Um, With all the hype surrounding The Last of Us 2, I decided to play the original Last of Us game Uh, Well, the PS4 remaster, at least. Um, On the last episode, I was halfway through the game. Since then, I've finished it. I guess you probably know that the ending of the game is a... a big finale and a factor in how people understand the game. So that's going to be a spoiler cast, um, but that's going to come as the last portion of the show. So, if you don't want Last of Us spoilers, you can listen to the, the first three game reviews in safety. And so that being said, let's get into it with some Katamari Damacy. Now Katamari Damacy is a bit of a a cult uh, title. It first came out in 2004 for the PlayStation 2, um, and then was re-released in 2018, as Katamari Damacy Reroll on the Nintendo Switch. But in the time in between, there have been 14 Katamari games on all kinds of platforms. It's been on the PS3, the PSP, Xbox, PS Vita, iOS and Android. Um, And it finally comes to the Switch with this remaster of the original game. Um, It's described as a, a puzzle action game. Um, by the designers, but that doesn't really do it justice. It's a very strange game in which um, a cosmic king uh, destroys the universe whilst drunk apart from Earth and sends down his five centimetre sun to the planet Earth with the task of rolling up huge balls of objects um, and then bringing them up to space because they can then be turned into uh, the stars to to rejuvenate the cosmos. Um, The story makes very little sense, um, but what what this um, amounts to is that you have these psychedelic kind of intro sequences where a kind of a a Ming the Merciless cartoon king with a rainbow tongue who plays guitar um, and is surrounded by dancing ducks and elephants and pandas and all kinds of surreal glow cartoon imagery um, ushers you down to earth where you find yourself in a kind of a, a cartoonish cell shaded sort of quite crude looking um, 3D environment you have a ball in front of you and you roll the ball around the play area it's sticky ball, it's kind of a sort of magical sticky ball at first you can only pick up small things like a drawing pin or a, a safety pin or a little pencil tip or a pencil sharpener but as the ball grows, so does the size of the things that the katamari can pick up. Um, until, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but you can imagine that the, the logical conclusion of, of where that premise might go. Um, in the first level, for example, you end up being able to pick up sort of shampoo bottles or cause some kind of vague household mischief before your katamari reaches the size that it's uh, allotted to be and you're whisked off back to the stars. So that that's kind of the game. It's like, if you've played, for example, Donut County, it's a similar premise. In Donut County, you start with a small, tiny hole in the ground, and you, can, you have to find the smallest object, then the hole grows a little bit, you can get a slightly bigger object. It's a little bit like that. It's a world-clearing game where you rush around a kind of a crazily cluttered cartoon environment, picking up everything that you can bumping into stuff and avoiding hazards like mice and mouse traps, cats, and eventually like shoppers with shopping carts, people on the beach, um, swinging each other round, things like this. And, and the scope of the game gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The soundtrack throughout is um, worthy of, you know, even if the game sucked, the soundtrack would be a standout soundtrack. It's just a crazy J-pop soundtrack with Katamari Damasi just repeat it again and again and again, and loads of na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Like, anyone who's played this game will remember the soundtrack, and anyone that lives with anyone that's played this game will be asking, what the hell are you playing? It's the audio equivalent of this this mind-bogglingly, kind of eye-openingly colourful and surreal game world. I can honestly say that every time I fire this game up it lifts my mood. It's like the the equivalent of like a a gaming double espresso shot audiovisual spectacle of fun. And I mean A question that comes to mind is, like, why on earth doesn't every game have, like, a a straight-up J-pop banger as the theme song? Like, we we want more game theme songs. Katamari Damacy has uh, has laid laid the path, and we want games with theme songs. Give them to us. Give them to us, Sony. But for now, Sony is going to continue denying us um, games with theme songs. But, I mean, Katamari Damacy is interesting in more ways than one pretty much everything about it is interesting. It had a very interesting route to being a game at all. It was conceived of by Keita Takahashi, who worked in the art department of Namco. And that's not really where um, game ideas traditionally come from. They come from the game design department. And so Keita had to work with his um, boss to try and find an interesting way to bring this game to production. They put it through a, a project called the Namco Digital Hollywood Game Laboratory which is um, aimed at bringing in students interested in working game design and giving them on-the-job training. And um, because this game hadn't been given the green light, this was seen as a kind of a creative way to put it into development softly. Um, And so all of the students in the program were tasked with making up the many tiny objects that the Katamari can roll up. And they're these little sort of flat graphics of everything from socks to gum to, you know, Um, tabletop objects sushi, teapots, teacups slippers, just everything it's all very Japanese like um, the game is set in Japan you will move through the the Japanese household and like a very clearly Japanese town and exterior environment there's also like a kind of a parallel story so every time you complete a level you get a little vignette of a Japanese family that is taking a journey with some children and a mum And the kids kind of start noticing strange things happening outside of the the windows of the train and the plane to which the mum is like oblivious. And these last 10, 20 seconds and it's like a mini soap opera that unfolds as the game is progressing. Something that comes up a lot when I talk to people about this game is that they maybe have tried the demo and that they've had trouble with the controls and the demo doesn't come with a... the control guide that you get when you start the proper game which is just bizarre to me because the controls are weird you use both sticks to move you have to push both sticks forward to go forward you want to turn left you pull the left stick back and the right stick forward so it's like you're controlling tank tracks that's the best way to imagine it Um, so you have to kind of use both sticks and that's that's all you do but in the demo um, you're not filled in on that so i spent all my time in the demo just trying to get the katamari to move at all which was really frustrating so if you've played the demo don't worry about the control scheme it will come to you you'll get it so i mean that's katamari damacy i find this game to be just like the most joyful odd thing and i'm really grateful that it exists um thanks to reagan for the um recommendation that they can really recommend picking this one up i got it on sale in the e-shop Um, It's not expensive. I think it's $15, $20, something like that. Um, You can put it on your wish list and grab it on sale or if you fancy just dipping into it. It's a great game to play as breaks from heavier games or big open world games. You can just play a level and you'll just come away with a clear head and a sense of happiness. And what more can you ask for, really? Uh, I'm going to be playing this one on Twitch too. It's a really fun game to play and have people... Um, come and revel in the weirdness with you. Um, So come find me on Twitch at Gaming in the Wild if you'd like to join in with that. Uh, That's all for this review. So that was Katamari Damacy. And from a game that feels like a kind of a caffeine injection straight into the brain to a game that... Is actually very, very calm, but which is literally about making coffee. Um, The second game that I'm going to talk about today is Coffee Talk. It came out in January of this year by Toge Productions. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe it's Toge. It's T O G E. Um, It's an indie game. It's described online as a heart to heart talking simulator. Um, In the tradition of visual novels. It's a game in which you really don't have to do an awful lot except um, sit back and enjoy the story. Coffee Talk is the name of an all-night cafe in Seattle in which you are the barista. And so you have a couple of regulars. The main one is Freya. She's um, a journalist at a local newspaper. But you also get like an assortment of drifters and night owls. With the slightly unusual quality that Um, Many of them are mythical creatures. So you'll be serving vampires, you'll be serving werewolves. But they all just seem like fairly normal people with some kind of vampiric or werewolf traits. Um, You make them drinks, you listen to their problems. Um, You don't really control the dialogue, you don't steer the dialogue at all, which is a really interesting choice. Because it would seem like uh, the thing to do really would be that you could counsel these people find yourself in the role of counsellor, but the barista does the talking for you. You just make their drinks from whatever ingredients there are and then you just watch the story happen. Um, It happens across um, a nightly schedule, so your regulars come in, a few drifters come in, you have a few conversations and I've been really enjoying playing this game before bed because if you're playing something like The Last of Us or if you're playing like a really big game, um, Katamari Damacy and Coffee Talk are both great games to relax with a little bit um, with, without any great need for commitment. They're episodic in nature. You can pick them up put them down. Um, Coffee Talk has like a very chill soundtrack. Um, my, my one criticism of it would be that the font size is a little small. And it's a perfect game to play on a handheld while you're sat in the sofa or something. You don't really want to be sat in front of the TV to play this game. So I do wish that the font size was a bit bigger, because sometimes when the characters whisper, the font size shrinks. The base font size is already small, but the font size shrinks even more. And I've had to use the magnify function on the on the switch, which is um, a little annoying. I think you do it by double tapping on home. You have to switch it on in the options, but it does mean you can zoom in. Uh, on the text if you want to pick it up but it's a little unwieldy Um, also i mean for a game in which one of the main characters is a, a crack journalist and writer who comes to coffee talk to to write her great novel there's quite a few typos in this game so hey toge productions if you ever need someone to proofread your game text give me a call I loved Coffee Talk. Um, I'm still playing it. I've decided not to binge it. I'm gonna play it one night at a time. Um, just really enjoyed these kind of new customer encounters and learning more about my regulars. Um, I think it's got a three or four hour play time but I'm playing it in 20 minute sittings so it should last me like a couple weeks. Um, heartily recommended if you like a visual novel. That's Coffee Talk. The next game that I'm going to talk about today is called The Good Time Garden. It was released in December of 2019 by a studio called Cold Sugar. It's the debut game of that studio, um, which is James Carbert and Will Todd. They describe their game as a surreal experimental experience, and the Steam text reads, explore a throbbing pink world full of strange naked creatures to gather food for your friend. Um, So, at the start of this game, it has a pink, fleshy kind of palette. Um, You are just a strange little creature that is born out of the trunk of a kind of an elephant creature. And you go wandering through, like, a very short uh, four-part game area. Along the way, you encounter some bizarre characters. Uh, For example... You can water with your trunk and you can pick things up. That's all you can do. The first thing that you encounter is a mushroom. You can water it with your trunk, pick it up, and at the center of the game area is a hungry kind of blob that opens its mouth when you come near, you throw something in. It's happy. It lets you through to the next area. Um, But as you progress, it becomes very apparent that this is... um, not a cute game. Like, for a game that is so innocent-looking, um, it's not. It's filthy. Like, there is this kind of mud creature that you can water, and it just sits there kind of cackling, it's good to be wet. And then you you take, like, a kind of weird little baby that falls out of it, and then that's what you feed to your weird friend. And there is another one where there are these kind of, um, bodily, um, protrusions sticking out of the ground, and you have to slap them to make this kind of conjoined twin thing spring out of the ground. Um, I mean, even as I'm saying these words, I feel like (laughs) it's making me uncomfortable. But the fact that I'm talking about it means that it was an interesting game. It reminds me of the work of Robert Crumb. If you know that, um, that comic artist, he plays a lot with taboos and with kind of crudely sexual and kind of fetishistic imagery and the good time garden seems to do the same thing it seems purpose designed to make you feel uncomfortable but to be so silly that you question yourself you're like i mean i was questioning myself i was like how can this little collection of hand-drawn graphics and like weird kind of british voices saying stupid stuff make me feel like I'm blushing basically, but it did. Um, So, I mean, I don't know how that sounds to you. I don't know if that sounds appealing or if that sounds horrific. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, You can pick it up on Steam or Itch. I think it's pay what you want. Um, I can't remember how I found it. It might have been on the homepage of one of those sites. The graphic style is very attractive. So I can imagine that a lot of people will play this game And just not know what the hell just happened to them. Um, If that sounds like your kind of thing. uh, Pick up The Good Time Garden. It's um, an interesting 20 minutes. To say the least. And a suitable dose of silliness. Before the final section of this podcast. Which is going to be. Our The Last of Us. um, Second half. And finale. And post game. Spoiler cast. So if you haven't played the original. Last of Us game. Um, or if you have no intention of ever playing it and want to hear what the fuss is about, I'm gonna run through my kind of uh, my my big takeaways from the game, some highlights, some lowlights in uh, the gameplay, and also uh, dissect the story a little bit because that that ending is um, quite remarkable, and people are still talking about it seven years later. If you're dropping out now, thanks for listening. Uh, come find me. On Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch, gaming in the wild. I'll be streaming some games that I've talked about here. Um, I'll even perhaps play through the Good Time Garden again, even though it's horrible, <laughs> just to show it to, to my listeners. So thanks for being here. Uh, and if you're sticking around, then I'll be right back. Okay, so I'll start by saying I've never come in to cover a game with as many notes as I have for this one. It's a lot to unpack. Um, In the last episode I had played up until um, you first leave the city and you get out into the wilderness. You go to Bill's town and then you finally get to Tommy's compound. and the game takes on a slightly different complexion after that so it it was a good breaking point, it was about the halfway point in the game. Um, And I thought I would start with just a few highlights from the game because I can completely see why it has the classic status that it has. It feels like a a benchmark for narrative design. Um, The way that the story is told is kind of spectacular, the voice acting is spectacular and the pacing of the game and the world design are all just superlative. Um, So the thing that I enjoyed most about the game, I think, was the feeling of being on a constant journey. Um, It's like you never go back to the same place twice. The game takes you by the scruff of the neck and it puts you from one difficult situation into the next and it constantly moves the goalposts. And there is a sense of urgency that comes with that just when you think that you're about to get to the place that you've been striving to get to, you know, to take Ellie to the Fireflies, to um, have the Fireflies do tests on her, to take her kind of immunity to the uh, corticeps infection, and to start researching towards um, a vaccine or a cure, or just to understand cordyceps better. But every time you get there, it's snatched away from you again and um Joel's journey with Ellie is extended indefinitely through kind of um all kinds of hardships um and the relationship develops along the way and that feeling of being on a journey which is fraught by danger is quite special it it has a road movie feel to it that is incredibly well executed um and some of my favorite moments of the game were not the the gamey kind of combat, stealth um, and gun gunplay elements, but rather the moments of peace that come in between. For example, just before you get to Bill's Town, you arrive in your first peaceful moment of the game. And there are several. The first one is that you get to a piece of parkland where there is no sign of any infected. And there is little sign of um, societal decay. It's just a park and there are just some trees, some running water, the dynamic lighting, the sunlight coming through the trees. And as you enter the park, a stalk takes off and takes flight and flies up into the sky. And it's a really poetic moment after everything that you've been through and a reminder that kind of the natural world, um, aside from what's going on in the human realm is still there. And that that's a theme that comes back um, a couple times more. After, after Bill's Town, you get to um, a forest hike that lasts you know, a good f- five minutes where you're hiking up a trail through the trees to get to Tommy's place. And you can just kind of take in this, this deep crevasse um, with a river running down it. Um, and there are waterfalls, there are trees, there are birds and wildlife. And then there is one more moment like that later on in the game when you control Ellie when she's hunting for a stag and those moments were really beautiful I I guess they are the moments that are allied to a game like Red Dead Redemption where you're just experiencing nature um regular listeners will know that experiencing nature and freedom in that kind of space is something that I'm into and those are some of the most memorable moments of the game for me um Not least because, during those times, um, Joel and Ellie will talk as they walk. Um, And the the dialogue in this game is uh, really, really subtle um, to a degree that I think a scriptwriter would be proud of. Um, There is a, a dynamic relationship between Joel and Ellie that feels really emotionally true. Um, There is an emotional complexity to their relationship. For example, Joel um, is really obviously like a kind of, has unresolved trauma from um, the events that he's been through in his life in the game. The game opens with him losing his daughter and 20 years later, he is not over it. Um, You see in his relationship with Tess that he is not opened up to anyone, even the people closest to him, and he's a sealed unit at that point. He's kind of, he's been emotionally cauterized, he doesn't trust anyone, he doesn't want to connect to anyone. And Ellie has come into his life, and throughout the first half of the game, Ellie is a child. Um, an adolescent rather who is in need of a protector in need, in, in need of a family st- structure in need of a feeling of safety and Joel is resistant to becoming that father figure but when Joel meets Tommy who he hasn't seen since the beginning of the game there is um, a visible a, a tangible shift where it stops being Ellie who is seeking that connection and it starts to be Joel, who is seeking that connection. And to me, this is like a a very real feeling um, relationship um, dynamic shift. You know, like some relationships are like that. It's like one person needs something from a relationship, the other doesn't want to give it. And then there's a kind of a pivotal point where the, the, the balance inside the relationship shifts. And so it ends up that Joel starts to slowly slide into craving the relationship um the father-daughter relationship and this is triggered by seeing tommy so it's like he sees his brother for the first time in 20 years or however long it has been and this starts to open him up a little bit and we see that told in a really cool way like at the start of the game um when joel um sort of lifts ellie up he gives her like a boost up to get on top of something or he finds a ladder or he finds like a plank to cross a gap These are moments when Ellie seems to feel that the teamwork is kind of helping to build their relationship, and there's a great moment towards the end of the game, as you're approaching the final destination, when Joel goes to boost Ellie up, and he turns around and she's just sitting somewhere, not really paying attention. She's stopped craving that connection, and it's Joel who suddenly, you sense that he feels a little hurt, that it's him who's now starting to crave that connection and that that kind of subtle relationship shift is is pretty rare in games i think and and i found that to be really really effective and it comes to a crescendo in the game's ending i mean if you're listening to this you probably know what happens but the end of the journey is that joel finally reaches the fireflies with ellie after all kinds of tribulations Um, and sort of disastrous situations and tense combat and um, you know segments of the story where the two are parted for one reason or another Um, yeah actually I'll I'll mention that when you play as Ellie that's a fantastic shift too Um, I really liked that when you play as Ellie everything changes for you you are not Joel anymore you are not this kind of like big bulky guy who can just kind of shove dumpsters up against a wall to create a shortcut up onto a roof but rather when you're Ellie you can you see the world in a different way you're smaller and that means that you can see uh, different ways through the world like Ellie will squeeze through small spaces she's better at at hiding Um, you feel that you want to avoid hand to hand combat with these kind of like grown up um, Combatants, and you, you feel a lot more tentative. There's a really cool gameplay shift there. So when you're playing as Ellie, you get a whole different experience, um, and it's not massively telegraphed. It just happens very naturally. You realise that Ellie, as a character, has different um, strengths than Joel. Um, it's it's just a very well done all round. Yeah, and all of that builds up to the conclusion, that that relationship dynamic builds up to the conclusion in which Ellie is taken by the fireflies, she's put on a surgeon's table, and Joel is imprisoned, and he's told that Ellie is not going to survive the procedure to um, extract whatever they need to analyse her immunity and to start working on a cure. and And Joel, you don't have any choice in this, but Joel decides to save her. So he shoots his way through the Fireflies headquarters, you know, this this rebel organisation that you've been chasing across the map for the whole game. Uh, Joel ends up basically massacring them to to save Ellie. He shakes off his guard, he kills him quite brutally, he shoots his way through the Fireflies HQ to the surgery theatre where Ellie is, he bursts in. And I mean, without even thinking about it, as Joel I lifted up my gun and I just shot all three of the surgeons. Such was the feeling of urgency that saving Ellie is the only priority. So we've really been put into Joel's shoes and we're really feeling Joel's shift from indifference towards Ellie and total self-preservation to save Ellie at all costs, even um, at the kind of suggested cost of humanity's cure to the cordyceps infection. Um, and then the final scene, Joel lies to Ellie. He tells her that the Fireflies were um, working with several different immune people, that no cure had been found, that she wasn't special, she wasn't helpful. And then she calls him out on it. She says, is everything that you told me true? Um, he looks at her straight in the eye and he says, I swear and then she just looks at him with a long pause and says, okay, and then the credits roll. And this, I mean, my first instinct when um, the credits rolled was that the kind of ground had fallen out from under the story in, in quite a spectacular way. My, my first read was not that, wow, Joel's like, um, grown into being a father figure. He's grown into being like, to caring again. My first thought was, Joel has just gaslighted Ellie, he's lied to Ellie, he's robbed Ellie of her choice. Um, That kind of slow-growing father-daughter and daughter-father relationship has been undermined. Uh, Joel's promise to Tess um, as she sacrifices herself for the mission has been undermined. He's broken all of the promises that he was keeping throughout this whole game. Um, and I thought, wow, this is this is just um, completely uh, torn apart what you think is happening in the game. It also made me think about the fact that, like, Joel's kind of this fairly sort of mean and um, sort of dangerous guy and kind of has to be as a survivalist and as a smuggler, but as the game progresses, it becomes apparent that Joel is kind of turning into this kind of human battering ram that just goes through everything in its path, whether it's um, like a a government blockade, or whether it's uh, sort of survivalist communities. I mean, some of which are pretty depraved, it must be said. And ultimately, Joel goes through the fireflies. um, And he's, the combat is ultra violent, you know, Joel, like, He throws people against the wall and crushes them. He stamps on people to kill them. He mows people down and massacres them. And so at the end of the game, I was left thinking, wow, Joel kind of went from being this kind of underdog figure that we're we're kind of rooting for and reveals himself to be a kind of extremely broken, extremely violent, extremely unsafe, and perhaps even emotionally manipulative kind of self-centered character. Um, and, that, and that was my first read on it. But, you know, we go away, we sit and we think about it. We go online, we read different people's um, takes on the story. There is like a strong strand of people who think that Joel saves Ellie in a moral way. Um, and they support his kind of parental instinct. And they defend his kind of big lie to Ellie by saying um, he's saving Ellie from, from the world, from the brutal world, in a way that he couldn't save his daughter. Um, I I say that, like, Ellie proves herself throughout this story to be um, perfectly capable of dealing with the truth. Um, She is such a good character, and it really is Ellie's story. She's such a good character in that she kind of flits between different modes in a way that feels really real. She's, like, clearly mature beyond her years in a really unfortunate way. Um, But she is still an adolescent girl, and so she flits between sort of stabbing someone because she has to, or learning how to use a rifle to help Joel get through um, a difficult combat encounter, um, to learning how to whistle, which is a a really kind of human moments in the game when Ellie is just trying to to learn how to whistle, and when she eventually does, you know, this is like a kind of a a really good trick because you're seeing Ellie grow. Um, from being a child into being an adult in these really subtle ways. Um, and so I was left thinking that, you know, Ellie deserves the truth, Ellie can handle the truth, Ellie can make her own choices, and even if Joel thinks he's being a guardian, he's actually stealing her agency away from her, he's cosseting her, and he wants to play happy families. But, I mean... I went onto some message boards and chatted to some people about this story. It's the kind of story that you have to talk about afterwards, you know. It's like if you see a a difficult, controversial movie, you need to pass it with people, you need to have conversations about it. And The Last of Us is like that. It's the kind of thing that you have to talk about and here we are seven years after and like the people that I've talked to still aren't sure where they come down on this game and on this conclusion. And so my my final takeaway from the last of us is that it's an effective ending like um, everyone wants to lionize or to condemn Joel, but the question of whether he should have saved ellie or have sacrificed ellie to potentially save humanity is philosophical rather than moral and there isn't an easy outcome for it you know there's lots of details surrounding it too The fact that Ellie is unconscious and can't make the choice herself. The fact that the the Fireflies are revealed to be a kind of radicalising group that picks people, picks kids up basically and kind of radicalises them into soldiers. There are all kinds of questions that go hand in hand with this conclusion. It's super effective. It's uh, a quandary where we come down on it. It's incredibly well done even if it's not a tidy package that we maybe have become used to from Hollywood story, it's a fantastic ending to a game. Um, I I gave the game like a a straight 10 out of 10. I affirm its classic status, even if the years haven't been entirely kind to the the combat and puzzle mechanics and the movement and so forth. Um, The game has such a narrative uh, heavy design and is so led by the voice acting, the motion capture and the story, Um, and the relationship dynamics and the emotional complexity that the fact that maybe the combat isn't as clean as you might like doesn't really matter. Um, I think I will play The Last of Us 2 I'm gonna play uh, Left Behind as well the DLC and so yeah that's it, that's my takeaway from The Last of Us it's a classic that deserves its status it's a great game, it's an emotionally complex game And mine isn't a take that anyone was asking for, but it's um, helpful to me at least to talk this out. So I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. I'll finish with a couple of questions as usual. I didn't get that many this time. It was kind of short notice when I posted it, but that's okay. So the first question that I got was, um, what does Katamari Damasi mean? Um, I've looked this up and Googled it and the best translation that I could find is that it's straight from the Japanese. Katamari means a clump or a clod and Damasi means a spirit. So, the literal translation would be clump-spirit. I'm not sure if, taken from the Japanese, there's like a better way to say that. Maybe it's like a a play on words or a joke of some kind, but the clump-spirit. The katamari is like the uh, the clump. And as for the spirit, mm, not sure exactly. Maybe it's to do with the kind of uh, Taoist belief that objects have spirits and so. As you roll around, you're picking things up and you're creating a large spirit, which can then be used to refuel the stars. Um, The second question that I got was from Lord Shmup, uh, who said, I've heard that there are issues with the controls in Katamari Damacy, what are your thoughts on that? Um, It's definitely tricky to get the hang of at first, like this kind of tank controls. I don't know how better to describe it than tank controls, so it's like you're controlling a left and a right, and you have to use both sticks to do it. It's not slick, it's not instict- instinctive. Um, it does take a little getting used to, but once it clicks in your mind, um, it's it's doable. It's doable, and the game is so colorful and vibrant and fun with that kind of hyper hyper soundtrack and you know that crazy palette that as you're playing it, you're not really thinking about frustration with the controls, you're just having a great time. Like, it's not precise. You can't be precise in the game. You just have to roll around like a crazy person and that's what the game is. So, I mean, if you've played the demo, I say disregard that experience. I played the demo too and I thought the controls were horrible, but once you've done the tutorial, which for some reason wasn't included in the, in the demo, really bizarre decision, um, you'll get the hang of it. Um, I love that game. Um, <laughs> I just adore Katamari Damacy. It's completely bizarre and brilliant. Um, the final question comes from, let me see, it's from Law Together, L O R E, at Law Together. It's a podcast uh, run by a couple. Uh, they say Safi is convinced that Katamari soundtrack is one of the best for any video game ever. Mystic is not quite as impressed. Um, Safi and Mystic are the hosts of that Law Together podcast which looks into the lore behind games. Um, I'm on Safi's side with this one. I mean, the soundtrack is, I mean, I, I think I was listening to that kind of stuff in my 20s when I was kind of, you know, exploring J-pop. I think like any self-respecting indie kid has a kind of <laughs> a left-field J-pop phase. And um, Katamari Damasi is music that is not dissimilar to what I was listening to at that time. Um, it's, it's really special, the whole game is really special. I really enjoyed the story of how it was made. I think um, for a special game like that, having a crazy development story where it's just kind of a passion project that somehow reaches critical mass, much like Ekatamari and is born into the world <laughs> as a, a rolling ball of craziness, is, is just very welcome. Okay so that's the episode, um, we are at the 45 minute mark, I think that makes it the longest podcast that we've done. That's because The Last of Us is uh, <laughs> its just a lot to unpack. I'm going to take a big break before the, the sequel. Um, but in the meantime I'll be streaming a couple games that I've talked about today at twitch.tv slash gaming in the wild. I'll be talking about these games at twitter.com slash gaming I have an Instagram, too, where I post uh, little videos and chats and stories. Um, I love talking to people that have um, listened to the podcast. I love getting feedback and comments from you all and just talking about games online. You know, it's fun. Um, So thanks for listening. I hope to see you out there in the streams. I'll have another episode for you next week. Um, Stay safe out there, everyone. Bye-bye.